welcome to episode 1768 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraph, and I am joined once again by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, welcome back. Meg, as the father of a daughter, I am <laughs> happy to be here with you today. I'll just preface all my sentences with that from now on. Yeah, it's it's apparently a very relevant character trait. You know, I think Ben, I had a I had a great deal of respect and also uh, affection for you as a person and a colleague, a friend. But nothing makes you truly appreciate just how much work someone else does to make your life easy, like them going on paternity leave for a month. So, thank you for for being back, and uh, thank you for doing all that you do for the pod that I probably did not express sufficient gratitude for before. Well, you. <laughs> You made my life easier and my daughter Sloan's life easier for the past five weeks or so as well. So thank you very much for all that you did. It was wonderful to have the podcast to listen to just uh, as a member of the public. And you did a great job. And I'm grateful that you kept it going during, I know, your busiest and toughest <laughs> month of the year. So thank you and uh, apologies again for my family planning or lack thereof. It was my great pleasure. I only regret that I used the Welcome Back Cotter theme already this week to <laughs> um, to start the episode with Jeff because yes. we could have really used it this one. But um, you'll have to come up with your own musical mm-hmm. interludes from now on. So um, good luck with that. Yeah. Well, thanks to you and thanks to Dylan for yes. his production assistance. Absolutely. I am back. Parenting complete. Mission accomplished. Sloane is self-sufficient, so I'm sure she can take it from here. Actually, I'm I'm being told apparently I have to be a father for the rest of my life. Yeah. So I, I have to keep doing that, but we'll also do the podcast now. Still on leave at my day job at The Ringer, but wanted to be back here and not have to force you to get an endless string of guest co-hosts. So it's been an interesting five weeks for both of us, I think. Yeah. And uh, we're all still alive over here and and functioning fairly well, I guess. Just based solely on the first five weeks, I wouldn't give Parenthood the greatest reviews. I I understand (laughs) that it gets a bit better (laughs) from here, Uh, but it's been fine. Everyone's uh, alive and and fairly happy and, and healthy. So things are going okay. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I mean, like, we've talked at, at various points. It's really remarkable that we survive as a species. Yeah. We're so vulnerable in the yeah. early going, just like really, just really vulnerable in that yeah. early run. So Babies bad at everything. Yeah. I mean, not one thing do they do well, really. Maybe one or two, but yeah. just really the most uh, basic tasks they are incapable of completing. So I really had to be there. And of course, Jesse, my wife, had to be there. And yep. yeah, it really is a, a wonder. I guess we all depended on someone at that stage of our lives or we wouldn't be here because uh, <laughs> no one is self-sufficient from birth. So I am happy to be back. And I guess the sad news is that the MLB season is over and we are staring at a, a month of uh, talking about whether there will be a lockout or not. But on the plus side, I'm back. So yeah, <laughs> that's something. Yeah. I think babies are really a testament to how powerful being cute can be. 
Yeah. Right? Because like they like they can't even really focus their eyes all the way. They definitely mm-hmm. don't have object permanence. Their no. necks are all floppy. Yep. And some of their sounds are awesome, but a lot yes. of them are bad yeah. or at least um like like uh, our preview of, of bad squishy things to come. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when I talk to f- friends and family of mine who are parents, they're like pretty, they're pretty in on the endeavor, even though really all that's carrying it, like the carrying tool in the early going, <laughs> they're, they are pretty stinking cute to look at. Yeah. So it's they're amazing. They're not even cute all the time. Like they're definitely <laughs> parts of the time where they're not cute or endearing at all. Yeah. But, uh, but they do their best to make up with for it the other times. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's uh, I I had as many postseason plate appearances as Terrence Gore, but mm. no rings. I was busier than he was. Former effectively wild guest Terrence Gore now yeah. up to three world championships in his career. What incredible. an incredible career he is! Yeah, had. <laughs> yeah, really remarkable. Yeah, so I've missed out on all the postseason storylines, so I figured we could talk a little bit about some postseason stuff that I was not present for, and of course, the World Series as well, and some takeaways from that, which I know you have discussed a bit with Eric this week, and it was a pleasure to just follow along like everyone else. Didn't know when an episode was dropping. It was a nice surprise when it appeared in my feed, and then I got to listen to it, and as I told you on one of our Patreon live streams, it was an unusual experience for me as a listener, just because listening to the podcast was very similar to recording the podcast in some ways, in that we don't do video generally when right. we're recording the podcast. You're just a voice in my ears, I'm a voice in your ears, and that is very much what listening to a podcast is like as well. And so for me as a listener, it was like the same sort of experience, except that when you stopped talking, I was not expected to start talking, but I was like prepared <laughs> to start talking in case you needed me to, which I guess, again, kind of mirrors the the parasocial relationships that people have yep. with podcasts in general. In this case, it's a little less weird because we do have a, an actual relationship, right. <laughs> but just the, the many hours of like, uh, okay, listen to Meg. What am I going to say next? Got to have something prepared to, to say next, except... Now, I was not expected to say anything, and if I did, I was just talking to myself. But I think your guest co-host did a great job and mostly said the things that I would have said anyway. So it was wonderful, and uh, here I am. Here you are. Yeah, they were the—I um, I think that if we were going to name a, a hero of this last month, from my perspective, it was certainly Dylan, but very close behind him were all of the folks who were nice enough to come on and hang out with me for an hour at a time and, mm-hmm. you know— Fill the fill the Benless void. Some of yep. those people were even named Ben. So yes, that's right. That made it easier. Yeah, but yeah. I think I missed more episodes in the past five weeks than I had in the previous <laughs> nine years combined. So I'm fresh, I guess. Not really, because I was helping keep a newborn alive during right. that time. But maybe this will be like the gap year we've talked about that Salvador Perez and Buster Posey took. And I'll come back refreshed and I'll be a more productive podcaster than ever. That's my hope. Yeah, although I hope that you end up taking a slightly different route than Posey took at the end of his year back, because then I'm going to have to fill a lot of episodes. (laughs) Yeah, we will discuss that a little later on today. But I love off-season Effectively Wild. It is maybe my favorite time to do the podcast, even though in theory there's a little less to talk about. And who knows how long this off-season will last. We might get an extra long off-season. And we survived a pandemic-imposed work stoppage, so presumably 
presumably we can survive whatever comes next here and we can talk a little bit about that next week and for the next month or however long that all takes to resolve but today I, I figured we could just recap a little because I felt like this was a great regular season I had a lot of fun this yeah. regular season there were a lot of interesting storylines the postseason was a little bit of a letdown for me, I guess, maybe. And I don't know if that was partly because I was following it in a different way than I would have if I had been blogging and podcasting regularly. Mm. But I feel like objectively, if there were a way to quantify this, it was not that great a postseason. It certainly had its moments. Yeah. And Atlanta fans are very happy with how it turned out. But if you were to try to assess the quality of a postseason, I guess you could say, well, there were no game sevens at any point, right? And there were a lot of teams making repeat appearances. So there was sort of a shortage, at least in the later rounds, of like fresh faces and yeah. new teams that we hadn't seen. And there were a lot of signature players of the regular season who were absent from the playoffs just because yes. of all the injuries or because their teams didn't make it. And other than Dodgers Giants, which definitely delivered, and if I had to pick a, a best series or a highlight, it would be that. And I'm sorry that that came in that round instead of a later round when there yeah. might have been more games. But other than that, Probably you would say that the very best teams of the year were not in it at the end, which I guess is not a prerequisite for it being entertaining, right. but it is something that I generally look for. And when you do have all those injuries and, and October just turns into a war of attrition and when the World Series champion is relying on Dylan Lee and Tucker Davidson and Kyle Wright to win, and that's not to take anything away from the Braves who had an incredible pitching and defense performance and got past the Brewers, it got past the Dodgers and shut down the Astros, the best offense in baseball in that final series, despite the cameos from pitchers that many people had never heard of. Like that took a little bit away from it for me. Like I would have rather have seen McCullers and Morton and Soroka and Acuna for that matter, or right. all the other missing faces from the postseason. So that was my general takeaway like if I had to sit out a postseason I guess I'm not sorry that it was this one and it's a tough time to cover baseball in general especially yeah. as a podcaster because yeah as you discovered there's no great time to record and post episodes without everything immediately being out of date but also because it's just hard to analyze individual games and even individual series in a way that really yields fresh insights for one thing because everyone's talking about the same baseball which is great in some ways because we're all paying attention to the same stuff but also we're all talking about the same stuff and so it's hard to say something that other people aren't saying but also it's just hard to analyze baseball on a weekly or daily basis so for all those reasons I guess if I had to go on leave maybe I picked a, a decent time from my perspective but not from yours yeah I think that the the point about it being hard to analyze is is a good one because you you know we have we have a version of this early in the season right where it's it's so early in the campaign that you're just like this could mean a lot or it could mean nothing who's <laughs> to say like we don't know check back in two months and then we'll have a better sense of it but you you don't even have the promise of eventually being able to circle back and answer that question of like yeah this guy's really breaking out or no that was like a weird right. little bit of flukiness you just have to say Eddie Rosario good forever <laughs> yep. i don't know man maybe maybe not could <laughs> could be true could end up being silly you don't really have that part of it and i think i think i agree that this was sort of a you know at best an average potentially a, a little bit below average world series cuz i think about 
when the Nationals won, they were not the best team in baseball, right? In some ways, they're a really good parallel. But they were the they were the opposite of Atlanta in that when you had their innings concentrated, it was like in their really good starters because their right. bullpen was not good <laughs> yeah. and unreliable. And some of those guys were hurt. And so I think that you don't necessarily need the best team to win, but it helps when the, the team that's there is able to showcase players who are legitimately stars, even if they aren't on the best team. Like, it would have been one thing. And I don't mean to say that Atlanta's run wasn't fun. Like, it was really cool that Eddie Rosario was, like, the guy. That's mm -hmm. weird, yeah. but great. But I think it might have felt a little bit different if, you know, they had gotten to – Atlanta had gotten to the World Series and, like, Ronald Acuna Jr. had led them to a win, right? And they, they got good performances from some of their players, to be sure. Um, and I thought that they were managed very smartly, especially given the, the injuries. But, no, it was not quite a banner World Series offering. I think you're right that, like, Dodgers-Giants really was the most exciting series of the bunch. Mm -hmm. And it probably helps that we saw, we saw more starters then, kind of. Like, we got to enjoy Logan Webb. Mm -hmm. We got to talk about, you know openers that was fun yeah. so that that was a good that was a good series but some of the ones that i expected to find the most dynamic kind of disappointed like i didn't think that um you know milwaukee versus atlanta didn't live up to the billing that i was kind of expecting and that's not just because i expected milwaukee to advance i mm -hmm. i offered badly ben i did not <laughs> i did not do well at all in my predictions i i think i maybe got a little too cute but yeah, I actually I ran the table. I, I picked every series perfectly correctly. I didn't publish my picks anywhere just because I was sure. on leave, you know, so right. it's, it's not really on record, but you could just take my word for it that I, I nailed it all. <laughs> I was actually going to ask you about that, whether the Braves, obviously they surprised, right? I think most people. And if you're an Atlanta fan, I'm sure that you're thrilled to win no matter how you won or who you won. Oh, yeah. With. <laughs> so like, if anything, the fact that you're reduced to like the dregs of the roster and you're calling up people you haven't seen in months and you still win, maybe that makes it sweeter in a way. I don't know, just because it wasn't all the usual suspects and you were really just pulling out all the stops to get there. And that fact that you said that, yeah, sometimes it just comes down to which team has an incredible month from its bullpen or Eddie yeah. Rosario just goes wild for a couple of weeks. Like that makes the postseason much harder to analyze or predict, but not necessarily less enjoyable. It can be a, a sure. lot of fun that one of those players or, or an entire team or a unit of a team has an out of character performance for a while. But do you feel like you or everyone underrated the Braves entering October or was it just one of those months and and it wasn't like they fluked their way to the title like they probably did have the the best month of any postseason team like they outplayed probably better teams in those playoffs they yeah. earned it but do you think that people were low on them or appropriately? Because, you know, I, I guess the Fangrass staff projected who would win or, or predicted who would win the World Series and, and all of the various series entering October. And of the 28 people who made predictions, no one picked the Braves no. to win the World Series, right? Which is maybe less strange than it sounds because, like, if you have 
favorites, then there's no particular reason to pick the underdog unless you think that you're really prescient. Like you might think, well, given 28 people, like surely one of them would have picked Atlanta to win. But if all the odds and the projections and everything kind of objective is saying that these other teams have a better chance, then it's it's not actually that unusual that everyone would have sort of similar picks. It's I'm kind of thinking back to when I was the editor at BP and we would produce our predictions and we'd get accused of groupthink if we had too many similar predictions, which can be a thing, certainly, but like also sometimes the underdog just wins and it's not really that surprising that no one projected them to win because they were the underdog and you (laughs) you don't project the underdog to win. But do you think that they were more of an underdog than they should have been? No, <laughs> uh-huh. I, I I struggle to think. I think that they were sort of appropriately pegged as the weakest team in the field. Mm-hmm. Other than the Cardinals, maybe, I, I guess. Yeah, other than them. St. Yeah. Louis. I think that like St. Louis and Atlanta were at the, the bottom of that. If you were going to like reseed purely based on, on how they had performed over the course of the se- season or even the second half, like if we're being generous and we're only looking at Atlanta following their you know, their trade deadline activity, which is commendable that they decided like, hey, we're gonna, we're not gonna just sit this out. We're gonna, we're gonna go for it, right? They were, let's see, by our version of war, they, oh, I should take pictures out of this soon, soon, Ben, we're not gonna have to, mm, we're just not gonna have to do it. Um, So they were, among their position players, they were the 11th best team in baseball. If we look at their pitching, they were... See, the fact that I'm having to scroll seems like a bad thing. They were 12th, their sort of staff in total. If you look at their starters, they were 12th. If you look at their relievers, they were 13th. And granted, like there are some ties in there and some of these differences are minute. And, and so like, I don't mean to, oh, I, I, I went into a a full season split again. Okay. Hold on. Sorry, Dylan. Oh, that, this helps my case. So in the second half, their relievers were 14th in baseball and their starters were, their starters were ninth. Okay. So, you know, like they're, they were, they were a fine team. They were not the worst team. It wasn't like they snuck in like in the bottom third, but like they were, I think, obviously weaker than the teams that were ahead of them with the possible exception of St. Louis. And so I, I think that they were sort of properly gauged. I think that it is useful for all of us as we go into predicting October baseball to just at the beginning of every prediction, everyone should remember that every writer is saying a lot can happen in a, a short series. That said, here's who I think will win, right? (laughs) Right. Like we are always trying to caveat performance in October with the understanding that we are going to just not be able to make as reliable predictions as we would over a larger sample because it's, you know, it's like not very many games. Mm -hmm. It's just not very many games at all. So I think that it was an appropriate amount of skepticism of their ability to advance relative to the other teams that they faced in the National League and then against the Astros and to their credit Atlanta just like flat out outplayed a lot of those teams yep. like you like you said they did not fluke their way in they had a couple guys get hot at the right time they had tremendous performances out of that bullpen and like I said I think they were managed very smartly in terms of um how their pitchers were deployed and you know the the 
pitchers that were sent out sort of rose to the occasion, right? You can have smart strategy that just kind of goes right because guys have to execute. And mm-hmm. they had both things. They were put in a position to succeed and then they did that. So yeah. I think they were they're worthy World Series winners based on their play in October. Yep. Um, and I think thinking that they were likely to lose in an earlier round and certainly against Houston is defensible too. So, you know. That just gets to be cool for Atlanta. Like I, I continue to think that we are missing an opportunity to marvel at stuff when our focus on the playoff odds becomes these predictions are bad. Like these projections are wrong, and it's like, well, clearly they, you know, accounted for a certain set of factors at one time, and then those factors changed, and the changing of it was really spectacular, and that's mm-hmm. really cool. So, yeah. Yeah, and Atlanta had not won a World Series since 1995, and they've had many opportunities to do so, and they had not even made a World Series since 1999. So again, their fans should be thrilled at their success, and and the team should be thrilled at its success. And also, I I saw a tweet from Mark Armour of Sabre who pointed out that this is now 15 different champions in this century, starting with 2001, I guess is when he started with. So half the teams in that span, like a 20-year span, have won the World Series, and and 21 have been in a World Series, and I think all but three at least made it to a championship series. Only, uh, I think, Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, and San Diego have not made it. So this is, a, a I think, a strong argument in favor of parity that it continues yeah. to be almost impossible to be a repeat winner, but also that almost everyone has gotten a taste at least sometime in fairly recent memory. So, yeah, I, on the one hand, don't want to dismiss every surprising October result as just, oh, well, it's the playoffs, you know, who can predict anything because I want to be open to learning from mistakes which is a good way to learn and if you're wrong about something or you know something happens differently from how you expected it to happen then you could perhaps glean some insight from that but also you weren't necessarily wrong about it it's just that it's an impossible task to try to predict the playoffs and I think you can run into mistakes sometimes if you look at a team's full season numbers and that doesn't reflect the composition of that team's roster when the playoffs finally roll around, which is the case with Atlanta. Obviously, they were without some key players and they added some key players. And I guess you could say, well, their run differential was a little bit better than that of an 88-win team over the course of a season. And if you look at the last couple months, so starting on August 1st when that roster was remade, they were obviously much more successful from that time, 36 and 19 before the playoffs started. But even 36 and 19 from August 1st until the beginning of the playoffs, that is fewer wins than the Dodgers, the Giants, the Blue Jays, who didn't even make the playoffs, the Cardinals, the Yankees, the Rays. (laughs) So even if you take a selective sample and say, here's when Atlanta was really Atlanta and this was that team, like there were still a handful of teams that were a good deal more successful than the Braves were. So that's kind of my takeaway is that it's tough to have any takeaway from October. And so you just sort of sit back and enjoy it. And I think it can be dangerous to use any outcome of any individual series to make a point. Like even if your point is good independently, like the outcome of that series 
doesn't really reinforce that point. It, it's right. like, you know, when people do the the tired, like, oh, the, the old school team beat the analytics team or whatever, which is, you know, so passe at this point because every team is the analytics team. They're all team. analytics teams. <laughs> yeah. Even Atlanta, like a couple of the most prominent members of that R&D department are my former colleagues with Baseball Prospectus, Mike Fast yeah. and Colin Wires, who yeah. won a World Series with the Astros and now are helping put the Braves together. So yeah. really, they're all the same more or less in that respect but even if it's like you know when the Rays won and I think some people tried to say oh well the the Rays can't win in October whether it's because of analytics or because of the payroll and like there's a valid point to be made that like hey maybe if the Rays did everything they do and also spent some more money they'd be even better than they are. And, you know, if you had the same team and you also, like, re-signed Charlie Morton or something and he doesn't break his leg, then you'd be even better. And who knows? Maybe they would have advanced. Like, you could certainly say that. But also, like, the Rays were probably the best team in the league. They have the most wins in the league over the past two seasons and three seasons, trailing only the Dodgers in the NL. So, like, it'd be hard for the Rays to be much better, and certainly they easily could have won a a postseason series. So, like, you can dunk on them for being miserly, but not because they lost, really, or at least they didn't necessarily lose because they were miserly. And I've actually, I kind of wondered when people were talking about that, like, if the Rays spent a little more, would they be better or would it all kind of even out? Because, like, it's not a coincidence that some of the teams that have been on the cutting edge when it comes to, like, Moneyball and Sabermetrics and all that stuff are the low payroll teams, right? At least initially. It was, like, Oakland and Cleveland and Tampa Bay. And that is probably at least in part because those teams were not going to spend. And so they had to look for other ways to make their money go further, basically. And that's still sort of the case with the Rays, which is not to say that they couldn't afford to spend more. But if they did, how much better could they be realistically, given that they've already been probably the best team in the league over a few years? But also, like, I wonder if there is some element of like, if you know that you can just go out and get the best free agent, then maybe you don't work as hard to like get the, you know, extra 2%, whatever it is kind of edge there. Like ideally you do both and you're like the Dodgers and you're smart and you also spend a lot. But I wonder if your whole team and your whole front office and your whole way of operating is built around the idea that like, we're not going to spend very much because our ownership won't let us or whatever, then can you just say, well, if you gave them $20 million more and, and they could just sign Charlie Morton, like they'd be every bit as good in every other facet of the game, except then they would have Charlie Morton? Or would it be that they would like take their foot off the pedal in some other way? I don't know. And would it all just even out and you'd have Charlie Morton, but maybe you wouldn't have made some other brilliant move along the way? So I kind of wonder in the like alternate history timeline of the race where they spend more money would they actually be better over that same span? I don't know. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's always hard. We'll never know the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. I think that maybe for me, the more interesting counterfactual to consider is that is what happens if they make the decision now with the infrastructure and personnel they have in place to do the work that they've been doing so well on the scouting and development and analytics side. Mm-hmm. If you take that existing infrastructure and say, okay, we're, you know, we're tired of being such an incredible 
regular season team and then not being able to kind of close close things out when it comes to October. And we appreciate all the randomness that goes into that month, but we'd like to be in a position where we feel like we're we're just a little bit ahead of where we've been when we've entered that postseason gauntlet in the mm-hmm. last couple of months. So we're going to spend now. I think that that's the sort of fact pattern that I would be interested in seeing them pursue, not because I don't think they do an excellent job. And I think that we've talked about this before, like the view of them as not wanting to win because of their cheapness, I think misses something. I think the Rays really want to win. I think they work very, very hard to like put a competitive team on the field every year. But I do think that you have to be so good at that other stuff if you're just foreclosing entirely an entire avenue of player acquisition. Mm -hmm. And they've been able to meet that challenge so far, which I think is incredible and like a testament to how talented their their coaching staff is and their front office personnel and certainly their players. But I wonder like what do you do? I'm going to really badly mess up a video game analogy. Are you ready? <laughs> okay, Welcome yeah. back to the podcast, Ben. <laughs> uh-huh. So like imagine you're playing a video game. Easier for okay. you than for me. You so far. And mm-hmm. and you've gone through a couple of levels and you've accumulated things in the video game that you that you are happy about, right? You got a bunch of like um medicine for if you fight a big bad and and get a little injured mm-hmm. and you have a bunch of different kinds of weapons and the ammo for those weapons and you realize huh i've been playing on hard mode mm. this whole time and then you keep all your inventory but you you just play on regular mode after that that's that that switch is is right. being able to sign free agents and then all of a sudden you're like well i've got all this banked medicine and also weapons that are cool i don't know how video games work (laughs) but i'm playing just on regular mode instead of hard mode and then maybe then you uh make it past a couple more levels Eh? yeah that kind of works i think i'm so proud of myself i feel like i've done really well plays video games yeah i I, yeah i actually was playing a video game yesterday called Kena Bridge of Spirits for PS5, which was a lot of fun and, and kind of challenging. And I beat it with a, a baby on my chest, slumbering peacefully while I, I fought a, a pretty tough boss. And I was thinking that kind of works too, because uh, that game has a few different difficulty levels. And the higher the difficulty level, I find at least like the, the less margin for error I know that I have. And so- right. The more focused that I am, you know, if I sure. if I know that there's like a one shot kill scenario, then I'm trying really hard not to get hit with that one shot. Whereas I know that if I have a huge health bar and I can afford to take a few hits and it won't cost me anything, maybe I'll be a little less careful or maybe at least I'll pursue a different strategy and maybe I'll be more aggressive and less cautious and I'll just go for the full frontal assault instead of trying to flank someone or something because I know I have more HP to to play with, right? And maybe that is sort of what I'm saying with the Rays. I think what you're saying is true also, but I guess like if the option to just sign Garrett Cole is like not available to you or you are making it unavailable to you, then you try harder to pursue some different route of obtaining innings than, say, the Yankees do if they know that they can just go get Garrett Cole. I guess that's basically what I'm saying. All I'm saying is that, like, if a team is winning 100 games or on pace to win 100 games as the Rays have been lately, like, they're probably really good, and it would be challenging to extrapolate from 
postseason performance sure. one way or another. But yeah, if you had more money and, and you spent more money and you had better players, then that could only help you. <laughs> but yeah. I think we can agree on that much. So with Atlanta, we've done an exercise on the pod for a few years now, just kind of looking back at a comment that Theo Epstein made in November of 2015. This was the year before the Cubs broke through and won their World Series. But Epstein said at the time when the Cubs were, I think, down in the NLCS when he said this, but he said, the only thing I know for sure is that whatever team wins the World Series, their particular style of play will be completely in vogue and trumpeted from the rooftops by the media all offseason and in front offices as the way to win. So if we win the World Series, it's going to be a necessity for every team to develop their own core of young, homegrown position players. If the Mets win, it will be required that you have four ridiculous young starting pitchers on the same staff. Oh, remember those days? <laughs> if the Royals win, you need to have speed and athleticism and contact up and down your lineup. If the Blue Jays win, you need to fill your lineup full of right-handed epic mashers and make a huge trade at the deadline. I think that's the only thing I can say. With certainty, this game is too nuanced and too complicated for there to be any one way. So he was saying, like, there is a narrative that, like, you know, recency bias, confirmation bias, whatever it is, the team that just won, like, oh, there's some inefficiency, some strategy that they have developed that other teams will now copy, and it's a copycat industry, and I don't know whether that actually happens because teams are probably too smart and have long-term plans to just pivot on a dime and say, oh, we have to copy that team that just won that way because another entirely different team won the year before and will win the next year. So he was kind of undercutting the idea even as he said it by saying that, you know, based on whichever team win, you could come up with your own narrative for that. But if we were to try to do that for Atlanta and we were to try to say, okay, what's the Atlanta model of winning World Series or what is it about Atlanta's 2021 season that other teams could learn from or should emulate? Do you think there is anything or was it just, uh, you know, make the playoffs and then have a really good month? Well, I have a couple. I, I'll offer you a couple. Okay. And one of them is, I think, hard to do. It's certainly not something you can do like on a dime. But one of the things that has struck me about Atlanta, not just in this year, but over the course of their rebuild, if we want to call it that, is that they hung on to Freddie Freeman. Yeah. Right. When they were when they were sort of up against it and realized we're not going to compete in the East, we need to restock and sort of wait for some of our younger talent to make it to the majors. They could have dealt Freeman. And I think that they would have gotten a pretty substantial prospect return for him if they had, Mm -hmm. but they decided not to do that. They held on to him and, and had him kind of there as an anchor piece with a lot of experience and sort of production that you could feel pretty confident in just given his track record as their younger pieces were uh, younger players, I should say, were reaching the majors and starting to contribute. So I think that if, you know, you're a, a front office type and you're looking at a roster that you think isn't going to necessarily be competitive over the next couple of seasons, Atlanta's approach does suggest that there can be value, even if it takes a while to realize in looking at a player of Freeman's caliber and saying, you know, we're not going to win with you for the next two, three years, but then we're really going to win with you after that. So I think that that's one thing that you can say. And there are arguments against that. Certainly, you know, there have been times where really talented players have been dealt and teams have been able to restock 
their system sometimes pretty substantially on the players that they have gotten back. But I think that Freeman at least shows that there is another path available to teams if they want to take it. So I think that's one thing that I take away from Atlanta. I think if you look at their season this year, there are two things that really strike me. So there's the behavior that they exhibited at the trade deadline. I don't think it would have been at all surprising to see a roster in the state that Atlanta's was, given where they were in the division and sort of what they had to overcome and what I imagine at that time they thought to be the wild card picture, and have their front office say, you know, it's not in the cards for us this year. We're going to have to restock and and hope that next year we have a healthy Acuna, we have a healthy Soroka. Let's see what we can get for some of the the pieces that aren't going to be in Atlanta past this year and sort of look ahead to 2022. And they decided not to do that, right? They rebuilt that outfield on the fly and they tried to put themselves in a position to win. I think seeing the East as winnable, which it proved to be even with sort of Philly and, and New York where they were dysfunctional, but still talented, right? And they chose not to do that. And that's not going to work every time. And your roster has to be in a particular spot in order to make those deals. And then those deals have to work out and that's not guaranteed. But I think that if you're a franchise with sort of a middling record and you have confidence that your division is winnable or that you can sneak into a wild card, Atlanta gives you a blueprint to do that. So I think that part is is very easy to operationalize if you're a front office, regardless of the approach that other teams that have won it all have taken before or after, right? Like being aggressive at the deadline is just... You know, it's just like a strategy that's available mm-hmm. to you. And then I think the other thing, and and Emma Bachelary and I talked about this when she came on, you know, I think that there was this weird narrative that emerged that I think because of Brian Snicker's age that Atlanta was uh, perceived as old school. And you just talked about the ways in which that's kind of silly. But I think that they did a really impressive job of getting their players and coaching staff on board with a different defensive strategy, one that was informed by analytics. And I think that, you know, that's a strategy that teams can deploy, not shifting per se, but like how you talk to coaches and players about strategy implementation and the use of analytics. Like that's just useful to be able to think about in a more productive way, regardless of where you are in the competitive cycle. And I think that Mm -hmm. I really appreciated having that sort of insight into how they approached getting their guys to shift. And, you know, it probably doesn't hurt to have Ron Washington there. (laughs) (laughs) You know, not every team is able to like put Wash to work in terms of getting their, their infielders ready. And, you know, I know that they had had a couple of experiences as a as a roster where um, they had had balls sneak through that if they had been shifted, wouldn't have. And so I think that they were probably, from the player's side, better primed to be receptive to that than, than you might otherwise see. I think we've heard a lot of stories of pitchers in particular who just hate the shift, even though it works a lot of the time. So I think that, you know, there are things that are idiosyncratic to Atlanta and that worked that probably exceeded the expectations of the front office even when they happened. But I think there's stuff here that teams could point to and sort of use in one form or another on their own roster. It's I think it's less like it's stuff that's a little less sexy than, you know, some great analytics 
you know, innovation or a new way of preventing injuries. I'm sure Atlanta would have loved a new way to prevent injuries this year. Yeah. But I think that there's stuff there that you can take away that how you communicate within the org is important and being decisive at moments when you can restock your roster is important. And, you know, sometimes holding on to your guys because you think you're going to be ready in a couple of years and that those players are still going to be good players. Like, I think there's stuff there for other teams to to take into account if they want to. Yeah, if you're disappointed that Dusty Baker didn't get his ring, well, at least Ron Washington got his yeah. ring. So there's someone to be happy for either way. And yeah, reading Emma's piece and listening to your conversation with her, it struck me that the way that they implemented that so suddenly, like if they had tried to do it that way 10 years ago or something, it probably would have been a disaster. Oh, right? yeah. But I think maybe the fact that they had Ron Washington and also the fact that it's 2021 and players know about the shift and right. pitchers and defenders are exposed to it and maybe they've played with it elsewhere and it's just so standard now that if you're not doing it probably some players are like why are we not shifting more so than why are we suddenly shifting so I would imagine that it's easier to get people on board now than it might have been in the past but still credit to them for doing something on the fly mid-season which is difficult so Yeah, I think there's a a lot there in what you said. Good point about keeping Freeman, which I guess they now have the opportunity to do again. (laughs) So we'll see if they make the same choice this time. And that was actually one of the things I was curious about. You know, who wins the World Series matters to those fan bases. Of course, it also matters in terms of those teams' offseason plans. And I've written in the past about how there does seem to be a pronounced tendency for teams that win the World Series to bring back a higher percentage of their roster than teams that lose the World Series, even though those teams are essentially equally successful leading up to that point. And so when you have franchise players like Freeman and Correa, who are free agents, I wonder whether the swing of the World Series from one team to another affects whether those teams bring those guys back. And yeah. I don't know exactly what drives that effect, whether it's just the, hey, we're all in a good mood. We all just won a World Series together. Let's keep the band together, bring the gang back, and we also can expect to be more flush because we'll sell more tickets and we'll be able to market ourselves as a World Series winner, and so we'll have more money to spend. I don't know why either of those teams would not want to bring those guys back. I mean, given what they've meant to those franchises and given where those franchises are in their competitive cycles and how good those players still are, like, I know there's a perception that Freeman was and is much more likely to return to Atlanta than Carlos Correa is to Houston, but I don't really see why the Astros should not want to bring back Carlos Correa. Of course, it's not always in the team's control when any team Team can make an offer, but still, it, it seems like those parties should have some incentive to stay together. But as you and Eric talked about it, it doesn't seem like there's a reason to think that this is the last gasp for either of these teams. I know that there's some turnover, and mm-hmm. with the Astros, maybe you have Correa departing, you have Brent Strom leaving, which is a, a pretty big thing when it comes to like a coaching change, in that I think he's been about as responsible as anyone for their success with pitcher development over the past several years so it might be tougher and as you said you have the ascendant seattle mariners yeah (laughs) maybe make it tougher (laughs) for houston but these teams could be back should be back depending on how they proceed and maybe the path is a little easier in the nl east than in the al west but still i think the opportunity is there for both of them 
Yeah, I think that that's right. And of course, Eric and I did not talk very much about the Los Angeles Angels, but that was only because I anticipated that you would um, (laughs) bolster the case for the Otani-led and Mike Trout returning Angels to make their mark in the West if they so choose. So don't stress, Angels fans. It's not a diss. I just didn't want to repeat material, you know? Yeah, I'm sure Angels fans are pretty fatalistic at this point anyway. So I think, yeah, what you said about the shift is true. Who knows? Maybe there were other behind-the-scenes enhancements that were going on. And I know Dansby Swanson thanked, I think, God and also the analytics department in his post-game speech. So it was nice. Yeah, I don't know specifically what he was referencing, but it's always possible that there's some secret sauce there. But yeah, the competitive angle, the try to win, the just go for it, I think that is true to an extent. I think it's, again, tough to generalize from any one team. I know that's the whole point of this exercise here, but I think Atlanta was in an unusual position in that they were expected to contend and, you know, they were defending division title winners and it was not a strong division. And so the path was there. And yes, they started out slow and they didn't make it to 500 until August. And, you know, by the time the trade deadline rolled around, they were shorthanded, but they had begun to play better. And I think they had halved the Mets lead by that point. So I don't know how many executives or front offices when faced with that exact scenario would make the other call and say no we're you know four and a half games back or whatever let's throw in the towel and and plan for next year it seems like probably a lot of them would have made the choice that the Braves made but maybe would not have executed the strategy as successfully as they did I, I remember talking at the time about like will the Braves be sellers like it was a possibility it was on the table and they did not go in that direction and in some ways, like since I uh, mentioned that you no know, Fangraphs writers predicted that Atlanta would win the World Series when the postseason started, I should also mention that I think the Fangraphs preseason playoff odds pegged the Braves perfectly, 88 yeah. wins on the dot. Maybe they didn't get there yep. exactly the way that the projections foresaw, no. but <laughs> they did end up right on the money there. But you had... An unusual situation that the Braves were like expected to be in contention and were still technically in contention and yet also had a a whole lot of holes to fill, Yeah, which is weird, right? Like you wouldn't expect that a team that needs an entire new outfield in late July is like going to end up winning the division. But that was where they were because they lost Ozuna, because they lost Acuna, et cetera, et cetera. They had all these vacancies, and Anthopoulos did a great job of filling them. Although, like, at the time, it was almost an afterthought because none of the players they picked up was a big name, right? It's not like they traded for Scherzer and Trey Turner or something. Like, they traded for a bunch of guys, you know, who were, like, average-ish which I guess if you want to say you could learn something from them, maybe it's that average players have a lot of value. I'm sure that's not something that is lost on teams, but maybe it is lost on fans. But like when they acquired Rosario and Duval and Soler and Peterson, like all those guys had average or below numbers with their teams to that point in the season. So maybe they 
bought low a little on them or maybe they just kind of lucked out and got really good three months or so from Rosario and Soler that they're unlikely to duplicate like you have to hand it to them when ultimately your midseason pickups are your NLCS and World Series MVPs that that worked out perfectly it wouldn't work out as perfectly if you were to do the exact same thing over and over again like if you were going to go by the Fangrass playoff odds at that point I think in late July like on July 31st I don't know if this is taking into account the trades or not, but it doesn't make much difference. Like, you know, they were 11.9% chance to make the playoffs on July 30th, 16.7% to make the playoffs on July 31st, 15.2% chance to make the playoffs on August 1st. And there were some wins and losses in there, but like based on the playoff odds and the projections that go into them, it doesn't seem as if like the moves that they made made the projections think, oh, suddenly they're going to turn it around and be the favorite now. So it wasn't like they acquired players who you would have expected to be big difference makers, and they turned out to be. I don't know how predictable or repeatable that is. And I guess they also got Richard Rodriguez, who just, you know, seemed to suffer post-sticky stuff, perhaps coincidentally or perhaps not, and wasn't even on the postseason roster. So they got all those guys. They didn't, like, give up big prospects or anything you know so it wasn't like they were like let's go for broke and get the biggest names uh, on the market they just got a bunch of like decent guys who filled holes so that they didn't have to play sub replacement or replacement level players and they hit on all of them (laughs) at least like collectively and it turned out great but we know from ben clemens's recent validation work with the playoff odds that like Generally, a team that has playoff odds in that range is not going to make the playoffs, historically speaking. So you could have teams that were in that exact same situation and acquired equivalent players and miss the playoffs, or maybe they would have made it anyway. It's it's hard to know because they were kind of an unusual roster, but like, yeah, credit to them for not throwing in the towel and seeing that, yeah, we're in a tough spot here, but we'll just go for it. And if you would ask Anthopolis or the front office or, or most people affiliated with Atlanta on that day, like, I doubt they would have said that we're the World Series favorites or we're going to, you know, maybe they would have thought that they could come back and, and win the division and that the Mets would implode. Perhaps that was semi-predictable, but I'm sure that even according to their expectations, the Braves probably outperformed or had a high percentile outcome when it came to how things actually worked out. Yeah, I think that's the part of this that ends up being sort of the weird idiosyncratic behavior of the guys that they that they traded for. And like, there are plenty of times where t- teams are like, we're going to trade for guys at the deadline and we're not giving up and then it doesn't work and they yeah, don't make right. the playoffs at all. <laughs> like that definitely happens. So I don't think that I think that's what makes this kind of retrospective sort of assessment difficult is because we know the outcome. And so, of course, those decisions look really smart. Yes. (laughs) And they could have gone badly. They could have traded for guys who ended up not being good. They could have traded for guys who were good, but not this good. They could have traded Mm -hmm. for guys who got them to the postseason, but then, like you said, didn't end up being literally the MVPs of several (laughs) rounds of it. Like There are a lot of options in the multiverse for Atlanta, but I do think that they offer sort of directional indications to teams that it can work, right? Like We're not for closing yeah. these as as possibilities if you find yourself as a gm like 
you know, confronted with the trade deadline troll at a fork in the road. And that's how the deadline works, right? It's like a bunch of little <laughs> goblins being like, hmm, A or B. That's how goblins talk. So it does at least provide a, a, a fact pattern that can lead to good things. And it's it's not guaranteed to, but it's possible for it to end up being sort of the stuff that matters. And mm-hmm. And, you know, it also helps when like, the teams that you're playing against in the division, some of them don't do as well or yep. tread water. You know, like the Mets collapse just remains one of the one of the things, man. That's one of the things of the season is that Mets collapse. So, mm-hmm. so you know, it's not it's not a guarantee, but it can be a way forward. And sometimes it works out. And then, you know, Eddie Rosario has a wildly good postseason, and the pitching is good enough, and your your opponent's pitching is hurt, and then you get to have a parade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if they had been in a different spot, like if they had been one of the teams in the jumble of wildcard contenders, yeah. would they have made all those moves? Eh, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. But the fact that they had a, a chance at the division, that that's what they were going for, that probably helped. And again, like, you know, they acquired a collection of players who were like in their walk years and, you know, some of them had been like DFA'd by prior teams and yeah. no one was expecting huge things from most of them and they got good things. So I guess it's just an argument for, hey, stay in the running. And, you know, if you can make it to the playoffs, then you can win a World Series because everything can click at the right time and it all worked out. Yeah. So I've been a bit out of touch. Has anyone talked about the state of the starting pitcher or <laughs> the length of games? Did, did that come up at all? In no, the past? We, were, no? We, yeah. we had other stuff to talk about. And right. I don't think that it really factored. You know, it's surprising that it would have not I know. come yeah. up. But <laughs> I, I have all these pent-up takes from the past several weeks, so it's it's a relief that no one got to that before I did. Yeah, I'm kidding. Of course, I know that was <laughs> discussed ad nauseum and also discussed on this podcast, so I don't have too much to add to what everyone said. It's something that we've talked about before, of course, but just wanted to read one email here from listener Corey on the topic of pitcher usage, because I don't want to assume that everyone feels about this the way that we do or, or has the same stance or feels as strongly about it. So Corey wrote in, I have a question about baseball aesthetics. It seems like there's a consensus on Effectively Wild and more generally in sabermetric corners of the internet, and I would add in old school corners probably even more so, that aesthetically speaking, it's better when starters pitch deeper into games. Part of me gets this preference. Following a starter through a game provides a narrative and there's a drama in asking how far the starter can go. But another part of me doesn't get it. After all, in movies and books, we also appreciate narratives in which a group of people each brings something to the table to accomplish a shared goal. And there's drama in asking whether one pitcher can continue work that a previous pitcher started. So while I get why a traditional starter provides a narrative for a game, I don't get why that's necessarily a better narrative than one where we think of a group of pitchers as the protagonists. I guess ultimately this is a subjective judgment, and I wouldn't want to tell anyone not to like the kind of baseball they like, but because there's such a consensus around the starter narrative being important, I feel like I must be missing something about why the starter narrative is more aesthetically appealing than a narrative built around a group of pitchers. Can you help me see what I'm missing? And 
I don't necessarily want to change his mind about that. If he's happy with the way that things are, there's no one way to like baseball. And if you like the team effort and it's like a heist and everyone brings their own set of skills. I was just about to use the heist analogy. (laughs) Sure. I mean, if you like that, then more power to you and you're getting more of what you like. But I guess we are generally on the other side of the debate, maybe with the majority. So what are your thoughts? Well, maybe heist isn't the right analogy. Maybe, maybe the analogy. I mean, I I get why a heist is an appealing, a heist movie is an appealing analogy here. But perhaps the analogy I would offer to you, Corey, is that of the Lord of the Rings, ah, Fellowship yes. of the Ring, which mm-hmm. is a movie that I quite enjoy. I own it. I've seen yep. the theatrical release, which is quite long. I have watched the uh, the extended uh, release, which is even longer. But yes. here's here's the here's the word that's important in those long. It's long. It takes a while. You know, you gotta you gotta give room to everyone's story. And yes. there there's all these guys in the fellowship, and some of them have swords, and others have axes, and others really like lunch. And you want to make sure that everybody gets their time with what's important to them. And so. If that's what you're in the mood for, that's awesome. And I agree with you, Ben. I think that like the place where these conversations tend to kind of go off the rails is when we assert like the aesthetic primacy of one way of watching the game. And I think there are a lot of ways to watch compelling baseball and a lot of ways that baseball can be compelling. And so if if the heist or a trek to Mordor is what gets you going, then that's that's great. Like that I think is fine. And I don't think you need to fit yourself to a different story. I think that when you have a starter who is able to go seven or eight innings, and we should say that, as I think I mentioned when I was talking to Eric about this, like it isn't just the duration of the start that's compelling, right? It's that a guy going that long suggests that he is dominating and that he is striking a bunch of guys out and that Mm -hmm. he is showing an impressive arsenal and that there are a lot of opportunities for like a slow-mo of him coming off the mound while he's yelling at this guy and everyone's like, ah, that guy was great and you remember that. And I think that those performances can be really fun to watch and they tend to stick in our memories in a in a way that other stuff doesn't as well because you know like when I was talking to Jeff I didn't remember that Randy Rosarina had stolen home it's a straight steal home and that was so exciting and in the moment I thought it was incredible and I totally forgot that it had happened because there's so much stuff that goes on in the postseason and it's just we're all busy and some mm-hmm. of us are very tired and so I think that there's something a little more lasting and indelible about the the starter who dominates for seven or eight. And so that's part of the appeal of it too, because it like anchors me in my experience of the postseason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and there are exceptions to this, right? Like we we really enjoyed all of us, I think, watching Tyler Matzik and getting to hear his story yeah. and sort of appreciate what a guy who had just been out of baseball was able to do once he could get his arm slot right and like throw enough strikes like it was like that was really compelling but i think that when you have the the endless parade of relievers over the course of an entire postseason it can get kind of taxing like it messes with both pace and length of game and that can be trying so i think that there is a time and a place for the fellowship Mm -hmm. but sometimes you want like a I don't know. You want you want like the Highlander? Like I don't think that movie is short either. But you know what I'm trying to say. Like yeah. you, you want to be able to really have a strong narrative anchor in any given game. And I think that the starter is just like a really compelling option for that because 
for, you know, every half frame. Like he's he's the guy who the camera is on at the start of every at bat. I don't know. Yeah. And there's just more maybe nuance and strategy that goes into how you are going to approach facing a lineup multiple times as opposed to just facing it once when, you know, you just have an endless parade of relievers who are coming in throwing fastballs and sliders, max effort, and it's effective, but it's kind of monotonous. And it is more fun, I think, to see a pitcher who has more pitches at his command and can use any number of them and maybe save something, you know, saves a, a pitch in reserve for the second or third time he faces yeah. a lineup. And so you can see him start to work in different pitch types as he goes. And maybe he loses a little velocity or in some cases, maybe even gains a little because he's been holding something in reserve, you know. And so you can see him kind of back off a bit and ramp up a bit based yeah. on who the hitter is and what the situation is. And it's just kind of a, an up and down and an adjustment as you go. And you get to see the guy get sweaty and try to make Make it work with reduced stuff or after he's already shown all of his weapons to his opponents and and that's hard to do and that's why pitchers are often not allowed to do that anymore because it's more effective to just bring in the fresh guy who's just gonna throw blazing fast fastballs and nasty breaking balls for an inning and then he'll be done and he'll hand the baton to the next guy it works it's effective but i think it is a little more entertaining as a viewer to have someone in there for the long haul i think you have the the tension of the pitch count rising, as Corey mentioned. Nowadays, I don't want to say pitch count is meaningless, and certainly there's a cumulative effect across outings, but in any given outing for a starter, like generally they're getting pulled before they're actually getting to their max pitch count, particularly yeah. in the postseason. And yes. I know this postseason was maybe a little unusual just because of 2020 and 2021 and the lighter workloads in the previous year and all of the injuries and all of that. But it's generally like a preview of how the regular season is going to look <laughs> a few years into the future when it comes to all of these trends that are generally seen as spectator unfriendly. And so I think that is part of it, too, that, yeah, guys are going to get yanked early because it's October. But even in the regular season, it just doesn't mean quite as much to, like, have a hitter foul a bunch of pitches off and make the starter work harder because, really, the constraint is not when is his arm going to fall off. It's just, you know, when are you going to bring someone in because third time through the order or whatever. And I think a couple other maybe more minor things, but... It is part of the stagnation in salaries that we've seen, as as Rob Means documented recently. And maybe that's not something that is uh, all that important to every fan, whether uh, players are making this many millions or that many millions as a group. But even if you just care about the state of labor and, you know, tensions between ownership and players and the likelihood of a work stoppage like the fact that salaries have stagnated have actually gone down a bit in recent years that does seem to be connected to the fact that the innings are getting spread out among a bunch of just anonymous guys who are getting called up from AAA and sent down over and over and over again so that is contributing to that trend and then i think maybe the last thing is that you're just getting so many players who most fans haven't heard of you know like they're just more major leaguers out there and i guess in a sense that's nice because more people on the planet get to say hey i was a major leaguer once that's cool but 
from a spectator standpoint, like even as a, a diehard follower of baseball, there's just no way that you can keep track of everyone. That is why we started our meet a major leaker segment, which yep. I, I guess we can continue over the offseason because we have not met nearly all of the major leakers. <laughs> and if you have Tyler Matzik, who has a great story and that story is well publicized, then yeah, okay, we know who that is. But when it's Dylan Lee or Tucker Davidson or someone, right. I'm not trying to single those guys out in particular, but it's like the Kiki Palmer on Dick Cheney line. Like, I don't know who this man is. Sorry yep. to this man. Like, I just, I have not heard of most of many of the people who are pitching in major league games these days. And I am ostensibly someone who is paying close attention to baseball. So <laughs> I think uh, that is a little bit of a, a challenge too. So those are all of the reasons, I think. And if we have not convinced you to feel that way, then uh, you're probably better off. Yeah. And if you need further convincing, you should listen to like the technical commentary on the extended Lord of the Rings. And then you'll be <laughs> like, maybe this is too long. Maybe I didn't need to hear this must much about like, you know, an island. I don't know, man. Yeah, the extended editions are, are better, I think, than the theatrical cuts, but it is an investment. I think that that, anyway, that's not the conversation <laughs> we're having. I will say that sometimes, you know, you have a weekend where you have a bad flu in high school and you just end up watching them with all the different commentaries and then you do voices and then you're like, huh, maybe this is why I don't date a lot. So, you know, it's just like yeah. a thing to think about. And I probably have nothing original to say about playoff start times or playoff end times. I think you covered it, but basically games are going to end late. I don't know that there is a way around them ending late. They could end slightly less late, yes. and I would be in favor of that, and I think there are ways to accomplish that, but this is not a new problem it maybe is still a problem, and maybe it's a problem that has been exacerbated by recent developments. But really, for our entire lives, certainly our lives as conscious thinking people who know what baseball is, like games have been ending really late. I saw yeah. that Paul Hemikides of ESPN had the stats the other day of the average time that World Series games ended by decade. And in the 2020s, at least when he tweeted this, it was 11.46 p.m. Eastern. In the 2010s, it was 11.43. In the 2000s, it was 11.54. In the 1990s, it was 11.29. So, you know, there's a, a difference maybe between 11 and 12 or even 11.30 and 12. But it's going to be late. It's going to be after 11. Like, Joe Sheehan just ran down the history of playoff broadcasting recently in his newsletter. And he pointed out that basically as soon as they switched from day games to night games, it was this way. So... There was never a time when like games were not being played during the day, but they also ended early enough that like if you're a little kid on the East Coast, it's not going to be way past your bedtime. I mean, that's just the way it is. Like game four of the 1971 series was the first World Series night game, and it started at 8.15 in Pittsburgh, and it ended at 11.03. Now, today, maybe it would end at 11.33 or 12.03 just because right. the games go longer. So that is a problem, and that's a problem that, in theory, could be corrected by a pitch clock or other measures. But the start time 
is not really a solvable issue, I don't think. Right. I mean, yeah, you could compensate and say, well, the games are four hours now, so we're going to start at seven instead of eight. But as many people have pointed out, it's a big country and there are multiple time zones yep. in that country. And so if you start at seven Eastern, you're starting at four where you are. And yep. a lot of people are working or in school or otherwise occupied. <laughs> so I think, you know, if you were to go back to like in the 1960s, the average World Series game ending time was 418. Now that's not good either. I don't think 418 Eastern. I, I would miss most of those games if I'm a kid and I'm in school. And maybe like, you know, in the 70s, it was 757 Eastern because you had some day games and some night games. In the 80s, it was 1026, which is, you know, maybe more manageable. And there were still some day games there and weekday day games and the games just weren't quite as long. But really, like, I think networks know what they're doing when it comes to getting the most eyeballs on the game as possible. Yeah. And yeah, maybe they're prioritizing adult eyeballs over young eyeballs, but still, I, I feel like there's no way to please everyone, and they're kind of splitting the difference as, as well as they could, so it's really the onus is on MLB to speed things up, I think, a little bit more than saying that the networks should schedule their games at a different time. I think that that is very smart, especially, you know, because you are the father of a daughter. So you have, yes. <laughs> you have new authority with which to comment <laughs> on these things. Yeah, I don't right. want to be indifferent to the time of game concern because I share it. I think that focusing on that, to your point, is far more important than focusing on start time because we are sort of splitting the difference in, I think, a way that is the best possible method given the size of the country and how many time zones we have. And like, I don't know, man. I don't want to be indifferent to parents who want to watch the end of the World Series with their kids. But like, yeah. when I was a kid, there mm -hmm. were things that I couldn't stay up late to do. And then I got older. And then I could. And like, it was fine. And I yeah. still liked a lot of those things. And I yeah. liked them more once I could enjoy them all the way through, but I didn't stop liking them because I had a bedtime. I don't know. Like I <laughs> I don't want to tell be just like, hey parents, figure it out because I don't have kids. And so it's really easy for me to say that. But I think that even if games like you're still gonna have kids missing part of late games because most mm -hmm. kids who are little have to go to bed by 10 anyway. So yep. I don't I don't know, man. I think that just like have a pitch clock and let's see what it takes us. <laughs> yeah. And you can make exceptions like if you're a kid and your team is in the World Series or something. I mean, yeah, I know sleep is important, especially at those sure. ages. <laughs> do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. But I think, yeah, like if it's a special circumstance, sure, let them stay up and make a lifelong memory and maybe yeah. get them hooked on baseball and maybe they're a little tired the next day and it won't be the end of the world. That said, like that's assuming that your kid already cares about baseball and you care about baseball and it's like an important event as opposed to, well, what if you just want to get casual fans or non-fans into this thing, you know, and you're not going to just give them an exemption to stay up way past their bedtime for something that they don't really care about. And that's just, you know, they might have to come to it a little older or come to it because they're playing baseball as opposed to watching baseball. Like there are a number of ways you can do that, or it's never been easier to catch up and keep up with baseball, like watch right. the condensed game the next morning or like watch the highlights. <laughs> you know, it's not the days of, of newspapers and not being able to see these games. If you miss them the first time, they're very easily accessible. So I don't think it's the end of the world. If you 
can't stay up. And if you have the inexperience of, of sneaking past your bedtime to watch or listen to a game, which I did at times yeah. in my youth, and I'm sure many people did, and that can be very memorable too. So I don't want to make it off limits to people. Definitely and, not. And, but also, like, you know, it, it just inevitably is going to be. And yeah. there are a lot of people who would not be able to watch if you were to schedule it earlier to try to, you know, cater to the five-year-olds or whatever. And right. I don't know how I will handle this now that I'm an expert parent and <laughs> qualified to talk about parenting things after my many weeks of experience now. I, I would think that given my attitude about bedtime just in general, and I don't know whether Sloan will watch baseball or care about baseball at all, but yeah. if she did, then yeah, I'd probably give her a pass on a bedtime every now and then, and it would be okay, I think. But also, like, you know, maybe that can be a huge headache for some parents and some kids and I don't want to suggest that you should always be doing that. So let's speed up the games. And I know that this can be a kind of an East Coast biased discussion, but there are reasons for it to be just because uh, there are a lot of us East Coasters out here, I can say as one of them. And as the famous network executive Spock said, logic clearly dictates that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And it's what half the people in the country are right. on the East Coast here. So like, of course, you were going to take the likelihood of their watching ahead of like the mountain timers, <laughs> you know, sorry to the mountain timers, but the, you're outnumbered. So uh, this is a, a number game, but you do have to take into account the rest of the country to some extent too. Yeah, I think that the way that I would maybe frame that is that if it's half then it's not few elsewhere yeah. but just to like make an argument for west coasters it's not our <laughs> fault that you guys decided to stay where you did. No, I that's silly to say. I think that you're right, we have to strike a balance, right? You wouldn't want these games to start at 10pm on the east coast, although there are plenty of playoff games that start pretty late on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. In other sports, I think that if you address the time of game thing, you can make things more palatable for kind of everyone involved. And I think that that is probably where we ought to be focusing our energy because the idea that you're going to have games start at least during the week in the mid-afternoon on the West Coast seems pretty silly. Like you said, I think the networks do a pretty good job of programming where they're going to get eyeballs in the most places. And as our friend Craig Goldstein pointed out to a number of people on Twitter, if being able to watch the end of the game was really all that mattered in terms of making lifelong fans, you'd expect there to be a sharper geographic distribution of baseball fans than there seems mm -hmm. to be. So I don't know that I, I find the argument that like this is what makes or breaks fandom for for young kids who live in the Eastern time zone to be a particularly compelling argument, although I am sympathetic to parents who have to negotiate bedtime because I'm sure that that's no fun. Yeah. But, you know, like they're kids in the West too. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's tough for me to have this conversation because uh, I have no day-night cycle in my, right, in my yeah. life. Like, I sleep, but I don't sleep in very predictable patterns. And now neither does the rest of my family. Yeah. So that's been fun <laughs> for a little while. All right. So I guess that's a, a wrap on the postseason. I said there were no Game 7s. There were also no sweeps, right? Were there any sweeps this postseason? I don't think so. I don't think there were, which I like because one of my yeah. very pedantic hobby horses every postseason is that statistically speaking, you should never predict a sweep and you should also never predict a Game 7 because right. 
just probabilistically speaking, those are never the most likely outcomes. And I've, I've written a whole article about that and no one cares. And uh, <laughs> when people predict postseason series, they're doing it often to get attention and make a statement yeah. more so than to be rigorous and statistically correct. But uh, nice to see that actually turn out to be the case for one postseason. So before we go, any parting words about Buster Posey, who called it a career somewhat shockingly. I was uh, very surprised to see this news on the day of what would have been Game 7. It came to light that Posey would be announcing his retirement. And this was right up there with, wait, Bob Melvin is the manager of the Padres now? In like (laughs) news that made me do a double take would not have shocked me if you had told me a year ago that Buster Posey would be retiring after this season. But given the season that he just had when he was the most valuable catcher in baseball, according to Fangraphs War, and helped his team to another playoff appearance and seemed rejuvenated on his load management schedule. And after the break year, I sort of assumed that uh, he would hang around for a little while, but he has decided to walk away after an incredible career. I guess all I would say about Buster is that, you know, I've talked a lot on this podcast about what Felix Hernandez's career meant to my development as a baseball fan and a baseball thinker and eventually a writer. And I think that Posey is is easily, he's not as sort of emotionally impactful to me given that I grew up a Mariners fan, but I think that engaging with pitch framing as a concept and, and really starting to watch for it when I was watching games had a really played a really important role in my evolution as a baseball thinker and there were very few framers who I enjoyed watching as much as Posey Mm -hmm. and so I'm really sad to see him go because I feel like I you know kind of sharpened my analytical blade on that particular whetstone so yeah i will really miss watching him play it is very strange that he won't be there you know we have the the possibility next season that you know we will certainly be without without buster posey and like might have kershaw in a different uniform potentially (laughs) and so it does sort of feel like there's this really weird changing of the guard going on the landscape is shifting and in ways that i imagine being feeling kind of destabilizing (laughs) come opening day but yeah he was just i can't i i don't know that you can say enough good things about him i think people should check out jay jaffe's um look at him and sort of the the odds of him making it to the Hall of Fame, which you'll be unsurprised to learn, Ben, um, Jay is is strongly in favor of. But Mm -hmm. it's so rare in today's landscape to see a complete catcher, right? A guy who is not only a defensive force, but like a great hitter. And I imagine that what catchers look like and the profile of catcher that's going to be the most valuable in the next five or 10 years is going to look really different than what we have come to expect in this most recent era of baseball. And so it does sort of feel there's something about him choosing this moment to be done before, like before the advent of a robo zone that feels Mm kind of right. Like we get to just enjoy him coming off this incredible season where he had this really wonderful resurgence and we get to kind of put that experience in Amber and he gets to walk away at sort of the height of his powers and, We've talked before about how rare it is for a player to be able to do that, to exit on their own terms while they're still so good is not how it typically goes. We have these long 
you know, slow slogs to them being not the players they were. So Mm -hmm. I think it's pretty cool that we get to to leave Buster in this spot in our minds. But I will I will miss watching him play very much. So um, and I also wouldn't have minded if he had like waited a week to make his announcement. But that's neither (laughs) here nor there. So, you know, I, I wish him well. And I hope that whatever the next thing is for him in his life, whether it's being home with his family or, you know, something else that it's as fulfilling to him as getting to watch him was to everyone who appreciated him. Cause yeah. I think he was a really important force for a lot of, for a lot of baseball fans in the Bay area. Um, and he was for me too. So. Yeah, it is rare to see someone decide to go out this way. And I guess I'm glad it's rare because I wouldn't want it to be a common occurrence yeah, for superstars to be <laughs> walking away. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd like to watch Buster Posey a little longer if he wanted to keep playing. But it is nice that, you know, we don't have to watch like broken down Buster just yeah. scuffling through seasons because we've seen that when he was hurt and it was not so much fun. And as we record this on Thursday, he has not yet publicly addressed why he made this decision. but. One would assume it it probably has something to do with the wear and tear that he has accumulated over the years with, of course, the famous ankle injury that led to the rule change and then the hip injury and surgery and the multiple concussions. And that's something that doesn't just affect your career, but maybe also your quality of life for the rest of your life. So it's understandable that someone would want to walk away. And of course, he has the young twins at home right. who played a part in his decision to opt out of the 2020 season. So lots of reasons and he has uh, accomplished just about everything that you can accomplish in major league baseball and yeah i guess he's not known primarily for his defense i suppose just because his offense is so good he's been yeah. the best hitting catcher over the course of his career and he won one gold glove and i guess like what four silver sluggers or something like that and you know seven time all-star and rookie of the year and mvp winner and right. three-time world series champion he has as many rings as terrence gore yeah so that's just kind of an incredible accomplishment <laughs> and he has been at least if you go by fan graphs which includes framing in war he's been the second best player or at least the second best position player in baseball since he came up you know it's mike trout and buster posey and as jay documented even if you don't count the framing fully which is tough because we don't have detailed framing data on everyone throughout all of baseball history he still seems to stack up as a top 10 catcher and you just have to keep in mind when you're looking at catcher career totals that they're going to be a little lower than players at other positions because right. they get banked up and they don't play as many games. So yep. even though he is calling it a career with 1,500 hits on the dot, like, you know, for other players at other positions, you would not think Hall of Fame. But for Buster Posey, I don't know how you can not think that. I mean, yeah. statistically speaking and just everything else, awards and World Series and character and all of that i mean he checks all the boxes and yeah even though you don't think of him for the defense like it's the the nickels law of catcher defense kind of thing right like the the catcher's defensive reputation is inversely proportional to their offensive abilities yep. and so because posey is such a good hitter maybe his 
glove was a, a little underrated, but he's a great framer. So we talk about the the Jose Molinas of the world where it's like, oh, you think he's bad, but actually he's good because of the framing. No one thinks Buster Posey is bad, but no. <laughs> maybe you don't know quite how great he was if right. you're not looking at that too. So yeah, I mean, I think pretty clearly the best catcher in Giants franchise history, and that's a franchise that dates back to the 1880s. So if you can say that, that is uh, pretty good. Apologies to, I don't know, Buck Ewing and Roger Bresnahan or whoever, but <laughs> Buster Posey is great, and I know it's been a, a joy to watch him, especially for Giants fans, but really for everyone. So yeah. sorry to see him go, but happy for him that he gets to go out on his own terms. Yep. Agreed. All right. So that will do it for today. I have taken my name out of consideration for the Mets baseball ops job. So I am going to continue (laughs) in my capacity as podcast co-host. And for anyone who is not been with us over an off season before sort of the same routine we are here on roughly the same schedule and sometimes we get a little weird (laughs) more so than usual even just because there's not as much news but you know we talk about all the transactions and we also get off the beaten path and i'm sure inevitably we will be discussing some labor issues as well in the coming months and just one programming note because i think we're going to try something that we have not done before but that we are excited about doing we are all pining for baseball now and i know there is a lead home and and other international action out there but if you are facing some baseball withdrawal we can help we're going to do a watch along of the korean drama stove league which I have plugged several times on this podcast and many listeners or some at least it seems have taken me up on that and none has been disappointed thus far, or at least I haven't heard from anyone who was disappointed. Maybe people (laughs) who didn't like it held their peace, but everyone who got back to me said it was great and I think it's great and I think it's the the best baseball TV show I've ever seen and I guess there's not a a ton of competition. We love pitch, RIP pitch, but I think this is even better. It's like I don't know, Ted Lasso meets pitch meets like Friday Night Lights or something. I'm just naming a bunch of really good shows, but it's like that. And this is a show that aired in Korea in late 2019, early 2020. And it's just one season. As far as I know, they're not making another, but it ends in a a very satisfactory way. It is a, a complete story. And essentially, it follows a fictional KBO team, a major league team in South Korea called Dreams. And this team is a a perennial cellar dweller, and they've finished last, I think, four consecutive seasons. And then they bring on a new GM who has no experience in baseball, but he has been successful in other sports. So it, it sort of centers on him and also on sort of a a high-ranking executive within the front office, a a woman who has uh, kind of moved up in that front office and is climbing the ladder and is uh, sort of assisting this GM who is unconventional. And really, it is heartwarming, and it focuses on the relationships between these people and members of the team. And it also just like very inside baseball as well. And it focuses on like analytics and scouting and like every 
aspect of the organization gets its due in a way that for me felt fairly true to life by TV standards and was pretty enlightening and I just love it really and uh, I'm I'm now forcing you to uh, watch it along with me I have put pressure on you before now I'm leaving you no choice but uh, what we are planning to do is maybe beginning the week after next we're just going to do some recap pods it's a a 16 episode season it's an hour-long drama so maybe we'll do like four episodes at a time i don't know if we'll do them all in one go or whether we'll space them out a bit but just wanted to tell everyone now so they have a little time to get into this and maybe get started on the series so that they can watch and react along with us. So I think that'll be a nice off-season activity, and we're capitalizing on the Korean TV drama hype post-Squid Game, so this has never been more timely. I still <laughs> and... haven't watched Squid Game either. <laughs> well, it'll have to wait until yep. you watch Stoveley, but it's it's really a well-produced show, and it's a, a celebrated show. It won a lot of awards in South Korea, and now a lot of people are probably wondering, how do I watch this excellent show called Stove League? There are a few different options. So if you are one of our international listeners outside of North America, you should be able to find it on Netflix. Lucky you. If you are not, if you are in North America, then you will have to find it elsewhere. But there are a number of ways that you can do that. It is on two Korean streaming services. One is called Viki, V-I-K-I, and the other is called Kokoa. And there are free trials at each of these sites. So there's a, a seven-day free trial at Viki, a 14-day free trial at Kokoa. And that's how I watched it. There are also some illicit means, perhaps, of finding (laughs) it on the internet. If you were schooled in the dark arts of torrents, it is findable. (laughs) Um, I'll just say that, and I'll leave you to your own devices. But I will link to where you can find it. And these two streaming services, they are maybe not mainstream in the States, but you you can find them on your Roku, and you can Chromecast, whatever. You can probably find the apps on your devices. It's not hard to find them. They are affordable for a month if you want to sign up for a month, but you can also just binge in a week or two, and that would work too. So there are a number of ways to watch this for free, and I hope that you all will, because I can't imagine that someone who likes this podcast would not also enjoy this show. It's uh, in Korean and and subtitled, of course, but really that did not interfere with uh, my enjoyment of it at all. Yeah, I'm very happy that I will have time for the show, which I have not been resisting because I thought it would be bad. I've just no, been- No, I know. You're just busy. Busy. So I am grateful for a podcast-related uh, avenue in, uh, to, to watch it. And mm-hmm. I look forward to chatting with you about it so that I feel like we're finally caught up because every time we talk, Ben, I worry that you're going to ask me, have you watched Stove League? And I'm going to have to say, no, I haven't. <laughs> but now I'll be able to say, yeah, let's talk about it. Yep. Okay. So we will get into that soon. All right. One last thing I should have said about Stove League, by the way, if you're worried that your partner or your roommate or whomever you watch TV with might not be as into a baseball show as you are, don't worry. Hardcore baseball fandom, not required. My wife watched it and loved it just as much as I did. It's got good stories, good characters. All the baseball nitty gritty is a bonus for people like us, but there's plenty to love for everyone else as well. What better time to watch Stove League than during the hot Stove League? I also should have mentioned earlier I gave credit to the Braves pitching and defense. Don't want to give a short shift to their offense either. 
which was also very good. I believe they scored 58% of their postseason runs on homers and 72% of their World Series runs on homers. So no, it's not just pitching and defense that wins in October, nor is it small ball. Hitting homers helps too, and teams were 24-2 and when they out-homered their opponents in these playoffs after going 35-5 and in the previous year's playoffs. And although Atlanta silenced the Astros in the World Series, the Astros' offense was great too. These Astros teams will forever be associated with sign-stealing, and understandably so. But if there was ever any doubt that that 2017 team or this entire Astros run wasn't the result of a lot of talent too, that these teams weren't good, and that this offense wasn't great, independent of the banging scheme, I would think that that's been put to rest. That'll do it for today and for this week. Thanks as always for listening. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and help keep the podcast ad-free and get access to some perks. Evan Brewer, Jacob Pridnow, Brittany Belay, Xander Stroud, and Michael. Thanks to all of you. And we're actually going to be offering some exciting new Patreon perks soon. Stay tuned for some announcements on that front early next week. But there's never been a better time to sign up, and we appreciate your support as always. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcast.fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance, but not only his editing assistance, also his production assistance, as he is still assisting in that capacity as well as I gradually return to work. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild, and you can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. We'll be back early next week to preview free agency and the CBA negotiations and more. Have a wonderful weekend, and we will talk to you soon. <laughs>